I appreciate it. Good morning, church. Very nice to see you this morning. It's always good to be here in this good place. This, this is a church whose story we have been familiar with since the earliest days. Uh, and uh, I, when Dan uh, invited me to come and be with you today, it's, it's just uh, very humbling and it's an honor. So thank you for the invitation. Thanks to, to Matt and Eric for uh, standing uh, the course here uh, during the, uh, uh, the, inter- the uh, interim, the, the sabbatical. And by the way, can I just say to you, you were my hero. Uh, any church that permits their pastor a time of sabbatic leave, a time to recharge their batteries, to spend time with God, and uh, to, to reorient and, and recenter themselves for the next uh, season of ministry. May your tribe increase. I pray that for every one of our uh, 600 churches in the network that I uh, work with. <clears throat> I just really appreciate the example that you have set uh, in doing this. It is, uh, like I said, a delight and an honor to be here with you uh, at this time. Uh, your church is a part of a network of churches, about 600 and, I don't know, 5 or 10, something like that, in the mid-Atlantic, mostly in Maryland and Delaware in the District of Columbia, some across the Potomac in Northern Virginia and West Virginia, and some across the Mason-Dixon in Pennsylvania, that uh, supports uh, ministries all across uh, the region, from the Appalachians to the Atlantic, uh, campus ministries, um, new church starts, uh, those kinds of things, and then strengthening churches that exist. And Adele and I are uh, employees of that network, and so we appreciate your support and your partnership in that uh, work that we're engaged in, and we're uh, profoundly grateful. This is my high school sweetheart, Adele, not the singer. Uh, <clears throat> so, in case, so I don't want any of you to have your hopes up. She's not going to break out in song. Um, I might, but she won't um, uh, today. And we're glad to be here. She travels with a service animal named Ellie Mae. So if you hear something that sounds like a dog shaking, it actually is a dog shaking. Usually when she hears amen, she stands up and shakes because she thinks that means I'm done. <laughs> and it's time to go. <laughs> so uh, so if, you, if, if you hear that, that's, that's what that is. Hopefully she'll be quiet. She might even snore before we're done. Well, I don't know how it was at your place this morning. I, I'm living right now over toward Frederick, Maryland, so to, to the west of here up on a mountain uh, for this week. And uh, um, this morning when we got up, it was about 38, 37 degrees at our house. Wow. Welcome to winter 2.0. Uh, I wanted to come and say uh, to you something like, uh, what are your plans for Memorial Day? You know, but I find myself more inclined to say Merry Christmas. <laughs> because it feels a little bit more like Christmas, right? <clears throat> are y'all Merry Christmas people? <laughs> you lose a bet. You remember when I was here before and I talked about Christmas, yeah. I always talk about Christmas, or the Orioles, one of the two. Let's go O's, I see that, yeah. Um, I I, I love Christmas. I'm an incarnation Christian, so I think Christians kind of are drawn to different parts of the story as it's unfolded in the Gospels, and the one that I love the most is, is incarnation. I can't get enough of it. This idea, which just absolutely blows my brain, that God himself would put on a bod with all of the the um, uh, risks that are engaged in that kind of a decision uh, and walk among us for 30-something years. It just absolutely is inconceivable, to quote the guy from Princess Bride. So uh, I, 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 uh, <clears throat> I, I, I'm just I'm dumbfounded by it. So I come back to it all the time. It is only 223 days from today, Christmas 2016, 223 days. Now, we're Advent people, so we start celebrating Christmas way before Christmas. If you're an Advent person, then it's in the mid-190s until Advent begins. And if you're a Hallmark person, and I'm a Hallmark person too, I'll just confess, I'm the people they make all those syrupy movies for, uh, only about 160 days and the first ones come on. Wow. 
You better get those lists ready. It's just around the corner. Actually, if you're a serious Hallmark person, you know that the second week of July, when they release the ornaments, they're going to play a whole week of movies. Woo! <laughs> and again, only I think me and three other people will watch, but we will watch all the time. So, so we, we love Christmas. We love everything about Christmas. As I say, we celebrate the whole Advent season right up into Twelfth Night. So we have a 40-day-plus celebration that we're engaged in. Uh, in our home. We decorate our home. We were tiny house before tiny house was cool. So we live in an RV and still we'll have four or five Christmas trees before we're finished. So we, we really do seriously get into the whole thing. We sing the Christmas songs, all of them. We play the, we're the people that listen to the radio stations that play only Christmas, Christmas movies. We love uh, the the Santa Claus story. We told our kids that when we were growing up, Santa Claus based of course on a, a true person, Saint Santa Claus is short for Saint Claus, for Saint Nicholas, who was a, a Greek uh, bishop uh, back in the day. And so uh, we told the kids that story as they were coming up and, and those sorts of things. You know, the 21st century version of Santa Claus, the, the um, Western culture version of Santa Claus, uh, he uh, has elves and, and, and he, keeps, uh, he keeps, keeps a list. You know the list, right? You familiar with the list? Uh, Santa Claus checks the list not once, but twice. So you know that part of the story, right? And, and he, has a, uh, he has a taxonomy, he has a classification system uh, for that list. He's actually putting all of the boys and girls in the entire world in two categories, and those categories would be naughty and nice. So you do know that story, don't you? You've heard that before. Naughty and nice. Those are the two categories. Nice kids on Christmas morning get presents or gifts, and naughty kids on Christmas morning get coal. Coal. C-O-A-L. Great if you uh, are somehow affected by the economy of West Virginia. (laughs) Not so good if you're a kid. (laughs) And I just get a lump of coal. Wow, (laughs) what a year. The reason that people kind of listen to that story and nod their heads and smile and remember that story uh, fondly is because we are all affected by, by what sociologists would refer to as an earning or performance ethic. It's built into us as human beings from our earliest days um, when we're little bitty kids. When we're little bitty kids and we do something right, what do our parents do? Yeah, they just they pat us on the head. They give us a big hug. They, they kiss us. They, they go, "Woo, great job. And what do they do if we do something naughty? Say, say, you can say it out loud. It's okay. They punish you. That's right, punish you. And it depends on the kid on how the punishment is, right? Because uh, every, every kid is different. But one of the things we do is time out. And time out is where we actually withhold our attention and affection. Right? That's an earning performance ethic. It's built into us from those earliest, earliest days. We go to school. Teachers do the same thing. Right? So, so you do what the assignment says to do and you do it well. You make your letters right or you remember the history right or those kinds of things. And you get an A when I was in school. An A, B, C, or, or, or D, or F. Those were the only five choices. A, B, C, D, or F. And then there was an educational study that indicated that was not good and inspiring for kids. And so we went to check plus, check, and check minus, which kids figured out also <clears throat> meant that check minus that they didn't do as well. So we went to smiley face, straight face, frown face. And my prediction is kids will figure that out too, <laughs> and the frown face will not be happy. And we, we tell teachers don't use red ink because that's intimidating. Use green ink. So you have a, a sad face and green ink, and you still know I didn't, I didn't do as well as the kid that has the smiley face, you know. Uh, sports, same way. You say playing well, the coach puts you in. Not playing well, coach benches you, right? 
um, sorry, in sports. I, I was a band kid growing up, a band geek. And uh, so um, <laughs> you just really like that. You must play. You were in band? Yeah? What did you play? French horn. Yeah? French horn and, and sax. Actually, alto sax. Same parts, right? Uh, and so, um, so I, that's why they'll marry me, my sax appeal. <laughs> But in band, you had first chair, and if you didn't play well enough for first chair, you were in, everybody knew second chair, which was the first place loser. <laughs> so, so it's sort of the way we're taught. And then we get into adulthood. We get into adulthood, and we go to work. And if we do our work well, many of our companies will offer us what they call a merit raise or a bonus. And if we don't do our work well, our company will tell us we're very fortunate to be employed next year. So, so this whole idea of an earning or performance ethic is just really driven into our, the fabric of our lives from the earliest get-go. It's a, part of, it's a part of who we are. So it's very hard, and here's the point, it's very hard for us not to project that story onto God. It's very hard not to think that God operates that way also. It's hard to think that way if you're a person of faith, if you're a person who's already placed your faith in Christ and you've received the marvelous grace that comes at salvation, then as you walk along with him and you want to do so much better and you want to be so much more and you kind of slip up, it's hard for that thought not to be back in your mind, oh, God just doesn't love me as much today. It's, it's very difficult for that thought not to be there. Or if you've been giving it your best shot, you know, you've been coming to, uh, to early service and you've been giving faithfully and, and you've been uh, attending the special service opportunities and you've been doing everything that the church calls on you to do and then somebody else gets a blessing and you get sick, right? So it's hard not to kind of impose that. God, why weren't you f- fair? I mean, I, I did everything, you know, that they, anybody told me that I ought to do. So we, we sort of impose this earning ethic, this, this performance ethic onto God and onto the character of God. And, the, and then we, once we have this idea in our mind that that's what God's like, we create God in that image. We shape, we, think about how crazy that sounds, we shape God to look like that. And, and we just insist that God act that way. And when we see something that matches that, we go, God's at work. And we see something that doesn't match that, we go, what's wrong? Oh, it's terrible, it's terrible, it's horrible. We, we conclude that. And then we take it a step further, this effort to control God like this. We actually insist that other people agree with us, that they see God like we see God. And when they don't, we are right and they are, it's the whole naughty and nice thing all over again right? We, we impose that view onto God. There was a North American pastor uh, back in the turn of the previous century, so we're going back to the 19th to 20th century, named A.W. Tozer. He pastored in America and in Canada, was in the Christian Missionary Alliance uh, tradition, and wrote, I, I don't even know how many books, he, he just wrote all the time. In one of those books, in one of those chapters, he made this comment, What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Wow. 
Let me give you context. The, the chapter in the book that he was writing, in the chapter, he was talking about a predictor of spiritual formation. So a part of our belief system, if you, if you are a follower of Christ, a kind of an orthodox view that's held across just about all denominations is that from salvation until we meet God in eternity, there is a process going on where we are being shaped into the image of God. And that process is orchestrated by God, by his spirit, where he's kind of carving away the things that don't look like him and, and pouring in the things that do. This is a work that God is doing, and we have the opportunity to cooperate with that or to push back from that. So it's, it's a God's doing it, and we get to, we get to play kind of story. You, does that make sense? So that's what's going on for those of you who are people of faith, and it's going on in you, and it's going on in me as well. And, and what's happening is we are being shaped into what the writer of Romans calls the image of Christ. We're, we're being shaped into the image of Christ. Here's, here's the kicker. If we hold an incorrect view of that image, then what, what we will feel passionately about looking like will not look like God. Does that make sense? So this is why what Tozer wrote is so important. What, what we think about when we think of what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us because it determines the degree to which we will actually look like the one true God over the course of the journey of our lives. Now, this, this would be an interesting uh, series of comments if it, if it wasn't, if, if we were the first people ever in the history of the world, 21st century Westerners or United States citizens, we were the first people in the history of the world to hold a goofy view of God, but we're not. In fact, all around the world, we, we all struggle with getting our minds uh, limited as they are around uh, the grandeur of God and the, the grace of God. We struggle with that. And throughout history, people have struggled with that. Interestingly enough, the people to whom God came, when he came in the person of Jesus, they too were struggling. In their world and in their day, there were earning or performance ethics stories that, that characterized God. There were sadistic accountant stories that characterized God. There was cruel, exacting judge stories that characterized God. And those were the views that were held by the religious people. <laughs> The people who were not religious had some really goofed up views about God. And so God comes on the scene in a a human body, in a physical body, in the person of Jesus who uh, lived, uh, was raised in Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, and and lived in that part of the world for those 33 or so years. And, and, And one of the reoccurring themes in the teachings of Jesus is this. God is not like that. Fill in the blank on whatever that is. This is the way he often began those stories. The kingdom of God is like, or the kingdom of heaven is like, or he'd tell a, a, a parable, and at, at some point in the parable, there would be this image of God, and, and that image is the image he was trying to get everybody to see and recognize. He was saying, look like that. Be shaped like that, you know, because if that happens, whoa, the world will know how wonderful God is, and the world will rush to a God like that. So, in large part, many of the stories he told uh, are based on this idea of revealing God as God actually is. Now, there's no way with one story in one day for just a few minutes that we can possibly get around all of our God stuff, but I thought it would be good this morning to, uh, to think about this earning or performance ethic. And I want to challenge you while we're looking at the story from the Scripture to be thinking about, okay, how do I view God in light of this? How is this impacting my own spiritual life? 
And then think about how it's impacting how you reflect God to people around you. People in your homes, people in your work, people at your school, people at the ballpark, people wherever. If you think about those two things as we go into this. Now, if anything transformative happens, it's going to be because God is the one who whispers those things to us. So join me in asking him to do so right now, will you? Our Father in heaven, hallowed and holy is your very name. Oh God, we are your servants. We sit in your presence. We have sung your praises. We have had fellowship and communion with your saints. We gather now around your story before moving farther into our worship. We long to hear from you. So push out of our minds those distractions that keep us from you and center us for these minutes, we pray, in Christ. Amen. So if you're a note kind of person, all you need to write down for this entire message is Matthew chapter 20. Because my challenge for you is uh, over the course of this next week, two or maybe three times, different days, that you would sit down and read those first 15 or 16 verses quietly and slowly and let the Holy Spirit take this story that I'm going to share with you and move it into your life. But, here's the kicker, don't want you to read it this morning. I want you to trust me. Now, that's hard to ask. You don't know who I am, but I want you to, to trust me. I'm really going to tell the story as it is. Here's why. Neurologists tell us that there's a whole different part of our brain that works when we read than when we listen deeply. And so I want you to listen deeply this morning and use that part of your brain. And then this week, use that other part of your brain to read the story. And between the two parts of your brain, at least those two parts, perhaps God's Spirit will really cement a concept that will be transformative for you and for the people around you. Okay? So that's why I want you to hear the story. Now, I will tell you in terms of background, the story comes from Matthew. Matthew, you know, was a tax collector, not a very popular guy. Uh, tax collectors are still not. Do you have any IRS employees in here, in the house? None? None? Yeah? I, I very seldom ask that question and have somebody raise their hand. If they are one, they keep their hand down. <laughs> not always popular. Way more unpopular then, because here was the way the Roman Empire worked. They would, they would occupy a land. And then they would uh, recruit someone from the people group that they had occupied to collect taxes. And they would give them authority for two things and two things only. Number one, to collect the percentage of taxes that uh, they were charged to collect for the government. And number two, to establish their own salary and collect that from the people too. Knowing human nature as it is, uh, people would collect too much in that second category. And then their neighbors would get mad. But you're one of us. How can you do this to us? You know, kind of thing. And, and they would ultimately be run out. It was not a long-term career track for most people. It was just more of a short-term kind of thing unless they were, had a certain disposition. Um, but it didn't bother the Romans at all to do that because they knew that if uh, the town ran you out of town, there would be somebody else in town who would think at least briefly, you know, if I were to do this job for, what, six months or a year? You know, once a month collecting taxes and then really ramp up the salary, even if they got mad and ran me out of town, I'd still do all right. We could get a place on the Mediterranean, retire, you know, live well. So, so they, they didn't bother them at all that people thought that way and acted that way. So this is the way Matthew lived until he met Christ. 
And when he met Jesus, his life was, was radically transformed. It really was, except he still was a CPA kind of guy. He still collected stories and journals, and that's, that's what he did that ultimately became what we call Matthew's Gospel, this collection of things that Jesus did and stories that Jesus told, laid out using the map. John Mark's Gospel was already written, so laying out using that map uh, was, um, was how Matthew's Gospel came together. He was particularly drawn to stories that had to do with the character and nature of God. I think, it, I think it gives us an insight into Matthew. I think it says that Matthew was a person who recognized, I, don't, I didn't get God right until I met Christ. I got God wrong. And so those stories were just inspiring to him. And he collected them under the inspiration of the Spirit, and they're preserved for us today. It is one of those stories that I want to tell you this morning. So with that long, laborious introduction, I'd like for you to kind of shake the cobwebs out of your brain, take a deep breath, to get your gray matter all stimulated and hear this story from the Lord Christ. It's Jesus speaking. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. Now, he agreed to pay the normal daily wage and sent them out to work. At nine o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace, and he saw some people standing around doing nothing. So he hired them, and this is what he said to them, I will pay whatever is right at the end of the day. So they went out to work in the vineyard. At noon, then again at three, he did the same thing. At five o'clock that afternoon, he was once more in town, and he saw some more people who were standing around, and he, he asked them, why haven't you been working today? And they replied, because nobody hired us. And so the landowner, the landowner told them, then go out and join the others in my vineyard. And that evening, he told the foreman to call the workers in and pay them, beginning with that last worker first. So when those hired at 5 o'clock were paid, each received a full day's wage. When those hired first came to get their pay, they assumed they would receive more. But they too were paid a full day's wage. When they received their pay... They protested to the owner. Those people worked one hour, and yet you paid them as much as you paid us who worked all day in the scorching heat, mind you. And the landowner said to them, Friend, I, I have not been unfair. Did, didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage. So take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is, is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should, should you be jealous because I Am kind? 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How many of you have heard that story before? Some of you have read it. Some of you have heard it taught. Some of you have been in in Bible classes where it's been taught. Uh, You you perhaps even read uh, some commentary about the story uh, before. So you are in good company with the people who heard the story that day. Because this story was actually not one of the many stories that Jesus made up. It was a story that the rabbis of his day told about the character of God with a couple of differences. He did edit the story. Uh, So what that means is when the story started, uh, he said uh, at the beginning, which they wouldn't have heard, the kingdom of heaven is like. That's not something that the the other stories began with. The kingdom of, of heaven is like. And then he said, a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. Immediately, people in the crowd that day were elbowing. I know this one. This is a good story. Because we Americans, people always, everywhere, like to feel like the experts, you know. So we want to tell the people around us, oh, yeah, I know this one. I'm good. And, and, that's, what, and that's exactly what would have happened. So Jesus goes into the story. He says he goes out into the vineyard very early in the morning. Don't know how very early it is. Do know that he goes back at 9 o'clock, so it's before then. I'm guessing maybe 6, early in the morning, sunrise, that kind of thing. Uh, Jesus goes out, uh, or the story, the landowner goes out into the vineyard, and he hires some workers. Now, I'm not a, um, I don't know a lot about grapes and about vineyards, but I, I do know a little bit. So I know that the person who runs the, the vineyard will go out early uh, during harvest season and start checking the grapes. They're looking for the color. They're looking for the plumpness. They're, they will pull them off and taste them. And when they become convinced, now is the time, at that moment... What they will do is rush to get them off the the vine just as fast as possible. Does that make sense? They don't want them to get too sweet. They don't want them to get moldy and oldy. (laughs) They, They want to get them off the vine just as fast as they possibly can. And so he goes into town and he finds these workers. Now, Adele and I are post, we're Katrina survivors. We lived in, in New Orleans uh, at Katrina. And one of the things that happened after Katrina for the, at least a couple, three years was that the Lowe's and the Home Depot, there would be day laborers, skilled craftsmen who would come and hang out to be picked up in the morning to go and work on your house or my house. Uh, and, and the construction folks would pick them up and, and use them throughout the day. And that was the world here. The day laborers would hang out at the local convenience store, the main street corner, that kind of thing. So the guy goes and he finds some early folks and he gets them out working in the vineyard. He goes back at 9 o'clock and he finds some other folks and says, uh, how about you coming and working in the vineyard too? Now to the first group, he makes a very specific promise on reward or an investment for um, uh, the reward for their investment. The, the promise he makes is this. You work one day, I will give you a full day's pay. And what you and I might not realize is in in an occupied land, that was a pretty significant promise because they were used to getting kind of jerked around. Somebody would say, I'm going to pay you for the day, and then they wouldn't pay you for the whole day. So that was actually a pretty significant promise that the guy makes to to the first group. But then to the next groups, he says this, I will pay you whatever is right. Now, if you live in a culture where one day's pay doesn't usually equal one day's pay, and somebody promises they will pay you what is right for three-quarters day or half a day or one-quarter day, you're probably thinking, well, at least it's something. I got to take something home, right? I got to take something home to the family. So that's, so that's probably what these people were thinking all the way through the day. Even goes out at 5 o'clock, finds some guys, uh, at least one and, and perhaps some, and says, uh, 
uh, why aren't you working? Nobody hired us. Then go out and work for me. Hour, hour and a half tops later, days coming to a close, sun's going down, the lanterns have been uh, lit, and, and the foreman has set up uh, a table to write checks. And, and, and the landowner, almost giddy, says, line them up, but put the five o'clock guy, put him first. And then the three o'clock, the 12 o'clock, the nine o'clock, and the early morning guys. Just spread them out that way. And then, and this is the cool part, when the five o'clock guys come, give them one day's pay. Really? One day's pay. They didn't work by that. It's all right. Give them a day's pay. So how do you feel about that if you're the five o'clock guy? Huh? Yeah, all thumbs up, right? It could not be better. The truth of the matter is, if you're the three o'clock guy, how do you feel about it? You know, three and a half, four hours. Um, I'm used to working all day and not getting paid a full day's wage. Now I get a full day's wage for that. Even if you're the 12 o'clock guys, you got to be thinking, this is unexpected. <laughs> Somehow, some way down this line, I don't know if it happened at uh, 3 o'clock or if it happened at 12 o'clock or 9 o'clock, but they unionized. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, I'm not saying union is a bad thing, but they, they got together in a union. They began to hear the whispers as people looking at the checks, walking back on their way out. You know, wow, got a full day's pay. And they start reasoning. Didn't that guy come at five? Did I? I'm pretty sure that's where he came. Yeah. And he got a full day's pay. Yeah. So that means I'm probably going to get a little bit more. I did more, so I ought to get more. That's the way an earning performance ethic works. I did more. So I ought to get more. And boy, by the time he got to the early morning, folks, they were all in a tussle. So, so they actually appointed someone to talk to the foreman and say to the foreman, what's up with this? Uh, we were here, not only were we here and working all day, but in case you missed it, hot. All day. Five o'clock guy, one day's pay. We demand fairness. The landowner hears this story and he interjects. And this is the climax of the story. The landowner gets in and and he speaks on behalf of the foreman. He says, "Uh, friend, I love the way he stops, uh, the way he starts. Right off the bat, friend. Right off the bat, friend. I haven't been unfair. He gets to the heart of the matter. What they're wanting is fairness. I haven't been unfair. Did, Did you not agree to work one day for one day's pay. Now, again, don't forget, pretty common to have agreed to work one day and not get one day's pay. Didn't you agree to that? Yes. And did you get that? Yes. So take what is now your money. This is no longer my money. I have given it to you. It's not mine anymore, you know? Go home. Take your wife out. Uh, give the kids a present, you know? <laughs> Go back to your life. You got one whole day and one whole day's pay. That's pretty good in, in an economy like ours. So embrace the moment. Celebrate the moment. Thank you very much for helping. Those kinds of things. Is it, he, he says, I wanted, to pay. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law, that's a good question, for me to do what I want with my money And then the zinger, should you be jealous because I am kind? Some translations render that question, 
Why are you envious? Because I am generous. It's almost like the landowner is thinking, I, I can't figure this out. I don't, I don't know what the problem is. I really don't understand. I have been, I've been kind to you. So why are you upset that I'm kind to others? I can't, it doesn't make sense to me. As I said, this was a story that when it started, apart from the kingdom of heaven is like, everybody around would have said, oh, yeah, I know that story. I get that. I've heard that before. Only at the end, they didn't hear that ending. Because the rabbinical story ended with the person who came last getting least and the person who came most getting most. So their view of God from that story told by their rabbis was, you do more, stay longer, God will love you more. God will love you better. You do less, slip in by the skin of your teeth, God won't love you as much. This was what they were used to hearing. This was the image that they held about God. And Jesus said, God's not like that. God is generous to all, whether you came early or came late. Whether you do much or do little, God is generous and good and kind to all, which is, of course, the motivation to want to be with God more, to, sp- to be more deeply engaged in that part of our life that connects to God and to share that with other people. This is, this is the way we are kind of wired by God. It's an opposite kind of thing than what they were used to. It wasn't about fairness. It was about generosity. It wasn't about law. It was about grace. It wasn't about how much I could do. It was about how much God has done. One of the spiritual writers that I uh, enjoy is a man by the name of Brennan Manning, passed away a couple years ago. In one of Manning's books, he writes this, Jesus reveals, he's talking about the whole of Jesus's ministry. Jesus reveals a God who doesn't demand, but who gives. Who doesn't oppress, but who raises up. Who doesn't wound, but who heals. Who doesn't condemn, but who forgives. Manning's mantra is, all is grace. All is grace. All is grace. Now, if you're sitting here this morning and you have been raised in an evangelical tradition, I'm sure you're kind of wondering about, what about this sin thing? You know, it's, a, it's a word we use in the church a good deal and it appears in the scripture. And it was actually a pretty common word in their world, but that's because uh, it was used um, to talk about missing the mark. So it was an archery term. You, know, you, you aim at the target and you fire the arrow and it falls short. So you miss, you miss the mark. Uh, It wasn't used in the condemnatory way that we use it today. It it was about disappointing or missing what we were appointed for, not being the character and the nature of God as we were initially created for, missing that somehow. And, And I don't want you to sit here and think that doesn't mean something to God because I remind you of what stories you studied, oh, I don't know, maybe a month ago, five weeks ago, about um, the cross. It does matter to God. It costs God everything. But what God extends to you and what God extends to me is generosity and grace. God is good. God is kind. God is generous. Even though they were used to hearing this story about keeping rules, this story was not about keeping rules. It was about 
going beyond the rules. Even though they were used to about hearing this is a story about the 6 a.m. guy getting more than the 5 p.m. guy, this is not a story about fairness. It's a story about generosity. I read a couple of weeks ago that human beings make about 30 to 35,000 decisions a day. Adults. That's a lot. Most of them unconscious decisions, you know. But when you're making conscious decisions, uh, decisions about how you'll spend your time, how you'll invest your skills and your talents, how how you'll use your stuff, your resources, uh, and those kinds of things, uh, when you think about God regarding that investment, what do you think about? Do you think about being fair or being generous? When you read this story this week, look for yourself in the story. Do you see yourself in the 5 o'clock person, the 12 o'clock person, or the early morning person? Do you see yourself in the landowner who wants to do more for the people around you? Dr. Tozer, I think, was right when he said, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us because it will to you and your spiritual journey, it will to the people around you, and it will to the people whose lives you touch make all the difference in the world.